Well, good morning. So wonderful to see everyone this Lord's Day. And uh, we're in an Advent series as we build up to Christmas Day. Only, Only two weeks away. What is it, 14 sleeps? Hey? And you, um, uh, we started last week a series in December, uh, sorry, a series on uh, Matthew, uh, the first few chapters. So that's what we're going to be looking at today again, the first chapter, verses 1 through 17, the passage that has already been read for us, the genealogy. So last week was part one, and then this week is part two. And uh, if you weren't here last week, let me just give you a little bit of a recap about the genealogies. I'm not going to read through it. It's already been done. But just to uh, help us to understand the importance of genealogies uh, in the scripture. There are many, many genealogies throughout the Bible. Um, They don't seem very important to us. They seem maybe strange to us. They seem a bit boring. We tend to sort of skip over them when we come to them. Uh, But I would encourage you to always try and look for some little nuggets. While all the names might not mean too much to us, uh, they were very important to the original audience. Uh, But we saw last week that uh, I focused in on the list of ladies that are in, in the genealogy, which in itself was startling. It's not normal for... The, the, these genealogies, these ancient genealogies, for them to include ladies in the genealogy. But more than that, you remember that those ladies, uh, it was quite shocking that they were there because it wasn't sort of the ladies that you had hold up as wonderful role models. They were ladies who were not uh, born Jewish, apart from Mary. The other ladies were Gentiles. Uh, in fact, Ruth the Moabite, the Moabites had been cursed by God. Uh, We also saw that many of them uh, were terribly sinful. Uh, Rahab the harlot. Uh, We also saw that there was shame that attended them, not only for sin, but also sometimes for uh, being widows, uh, for having lost uh, family members and the shame that came upon them in in those cultures. Uh, Tamar not having children and being a widow. And so... uh, I think it was legitimate to say that Matthew put those names there intentionally to remind us of the the gospel of grace, Uh, to remind us that, and especially the original audience, which would have been uh, the Jewish nation, Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience, to remind the Jews that uh, they need God's grace, and God is a gracious God, and he saves those that most people would say, well, they're not worthy. Uh, They're not good enough. They're outsiders. And so Matthew really sort of puts it in the face of the Pharisees to say, this is is who God is. This is who Christ is. The gospel is one of grace. Uh, It is is open to all people, to all nations, uh, no matter your background. And so that was the emphasis from last week. Uh, and so this week we're going to come at two, look at two other aspects of the genealogy that I think were in uh, Matthew's mind as he gave this genealogy, as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and you would remember that, and if it's your first time when the scripture was read, 
that Matthew tells us that there were these three sets of 14. And uh, I think the best explanation for that is that it leaves us with six sets of seven. Six sets of seven. And seven is an important number in Scripture, a number of completion. And that means that Jesus, the coming of Jesus, is the seventh seven. The seventh seven. Uh, And shows us, just as we see in Genesis, when God created the work week. You remember that? Six days you shall work, and on the seventh you will rest. The coming of Christ is, is a picture of rest. He even says that, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And so again, I see in that that Matthew is pointing us to the rest that Christ will, will give. Now in the Gospels, there are two genealogies. There's this one in Matthew uh, and there is one in Luke's Gospel. So two genealogies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've read them or you can go and read them, you'll find some differences. And so people say, you see, the Bible can't be trusted. There are these differences in, in uh, the lists. Uh, but you don't need to lose sleep. There's always uh, very good explanations for any possible contradictions in the Scripture for anyone who is teachable. Uh, just simply to say this, Luke's genealogy is focused more on the biological line of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Whereas Matthew's one is to do with Jesus as king. And so it is focusing on the succession in the Davidic line. So this is one of the points that we're going to look at today. Matthew's one of Matthew's primary points is to show that Jesus Christ is the king. Is the promised Messiah. The king of the Jews. The king of the universe who has come to earth. And he is showing that through the genealogy. And so uh, he is focusing on the line of succession, whereas Luke focuses on the biological lineage. And so Matthew is more a legal aspect. He's focusing on succession. That's very important. Uh, Lelo and I were talking recently. Uh, it's been, you know, this last year has been quite a, quite a year for, if, if, if you have interest in, in monarchies, uh, with, the, with the Zulu change in in kingship and then of course what's happened in in the united kingdom and of course these are really figureheads they don't wield much power but it is quite fascinating and it gives us a bit of insight into the past and what the world was like and what the world was like at the time of the lord jesus christ when uh, when rulers were kings there was no such thing as democracy Uh, you know it had been tried on a certain level in in athens Uh, But even that type of democracy was only a very few people could vote. It wasn't a democracy as we understand it. Most people lived under kings, under rulers. Uh, And uh, Lelo was was, uh, noting that, and maybe you've noticed this, if you've watched any of, you know, recently the royal activities, whether it's weddings or funerals or things like that, and then they'll say, this is uh, Duke so-and-so, he is number 14 in line to the throne. So he was saying, you know, it's quite funny watching in Europe is this very specific, you know, they can go to like number 53 in line to the throne, uh, whereas he was saying in the Zulu monarchy, it's not like that. Uh, It's sort of decided upon the death of the monarch. Uh, This line is more like that one in Europe, where it was very specific. There is a line of succession. It is recorded. They need to know who is next in line. And that's why Matthew is, is recording this very detailed list to, to prove 
that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the promised king. He is the one legally and biologically who is the right to be the king of the Jews. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Luke starts his genealogy, or he goes all the way back to Adam. So the first man, Adam, that God created, Luke goes all the way back to him, uh, basically saying that Jesus Christ is representing all of humanity. And Luke, his audience is Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew. And so it's important to show that Christ is the Savior of all nations. Matthew, as I've said, is writing to, to the Jews primarily. And so he doesn't go all the way back to Adam. He doesn't begin with Adam. He, he, in a sense, begins with Abraham. But actually, if you look at verse 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he'll start with Abraham and go through the patriarchs. But notice there that he actually begins by saying he's the son of David. And that's because Matthew, as I've said, is showing us that Jesus Christ is the true king. He is the promised Messiah. So what are the takeaways for us from this? Kingship is a massive theme in Matthew's gospel. Matthew is showing that Jesus Christ is the true king. You can see this in the first few chapters. Remember, uh, the wise men come and say, we want to worship the king of the Jews. He is called the king of the Jews. And Herod, the king of Judea, already feels threatened and pretends. And he says, well, please tell me. Once you've found him, tell me. Because I would also like to go and worship. And of course, you know, that's a load of nonsense. Uh, he wanted to kill this pretender to the throne. He wanted to get rid of him. And he ends up killing many uh, uh, young boys in, in, in uh, pursuit of this, this end. But already again, we see... Jesus is the king. And then the wise men do find him and they bring in these costly gifts. Okay. No one here is going to get those type of gifts at Christmas, okay? <laughs> Unless you've made a mistake and you've attended here by accident on your way to Dubai somewhere on a shopping spree. Uh, none of us are going to get gold, okay? Uh, none of us are going to, to receive these, the most costly things uh, that are available. But here, yeah, this little baby receives the gifts that are worthy of a king because he is a king. And then as Jesus grows up and you read through Matthew, you see that Jesus speaks with the authority of a king, doesn't he? In fact, the people are quite stunned by this. No one ever spoke like this. No one ever spoke with such authority. But he speaks as a king and then he makes these startling statements throughout Matthew. He says that he's going to judge the whole world. Mind-blowing when you think about it. When you think of any other human being standing up and saying that. Never mind, you know, some megalomaniac in charge of an empire. You know, you say, well, he's a bit nuts anyway, so yeah. But imagine a poor manual laborer in some sort of rural hillbilly area in a backwater, standing up and saying, on that day, I will sort out the sheep and the goats of all the nations. We're perhaps used to hearing this kind of language. Perhaps you grew up in the church and you're used to it. But 
I want us to again recover the shock and how shocking the claims of Christ are. But he speaks as a king. He's going to judge. John the Baptist, when he starts off and he declares he, the, 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 the forerunner for Jesus' ministry, he says that they need to repent because the kingdom of God has come. How can the kingdom have come? Because the king has come. Jesus Christ has come. And then Jesus gives all his teachings, his parables of the kingdom. Again, over and over again, the kingdom is referred to in Matthew's gospel. And you must not think of a kingdom as, as limited to a geographical sphere. Kingdom here, the focus is primarily the king is here. You can't have a kingdom without a, a king. And Christ has come and he is the king. And then when he enters Jerusalem, he is hailed as the son of David. David is the great king from the Old Testament. As we've seen already, he is the one, the first name that is mentioned in this genealogy. And Jesus on the cross claims dominion over the angels. Don't you think I could call a legion of angels right now? Remarkable statements. And then after the resurrection, right at the end of probably the most well-known passage in Matthew, the Great Commission... What does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Again, Jesus claiming all authority. I am the king. I am the one in charge. All authority, not just on earth, but in heaven has been given to me. And so this theme of kingship is all the way through the gospel of Matthew. It is a major theme, a major motif throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And it begins right here in the genealogy. It begins with the first name, that Jesus Christ is the son of David. And so David is proving to the Jews, Jesus Christ's claim is legitimate. He is the Messiah. He is legally, and then according to Luke, biologically, the descendant of David and has a right to be the king of the Jews. So the first thing I want to uh, draw your attention to is this. Uh, You see, the coming of Christ uh, is not some strange, sudden, unforeseen thing. The the Old Testament is is bigger than the New Testament. Okay, Sort of two-thirds of the whole Bible. And that's why it's so important that we know the Old Testament. And all the way through, right from the beginning... There is the promise of this one who will come, this Redeemer, this Savior, this King. Christ's coming, Christ's uh, appearing, Christ's birth was not something that was not prophesied about, that was not spoken about. Uh, So to say all of this, especially if you're not a Christian, if you're you're visiting family up here, I didn't expect to see so many people today because most of our people are away. So it's wonderful that... People are coming. Maybe you're up here. I always think, who would go to Gauteng for holiday? Uh, <laughs> anyway, praise the Lord, you're here. Um, but maybe you're here. Well, that's, we're here. We might as well go to church. Uh, and you think that Christianity is just like any other religion, and Jesus Christ is just another great guru, a nice guy, a nice teacher. Uh, but I want you to see that the coming of Christ is not like any other cult leader. It's not just that Jesus was a charismatic leader. We just got a group of followers around him. He didn't just sort of appear on the scene. He's not a Jim Jones or a Muhammad 
uh, or a Joseph Smith or something like that that just sort of, you know, stuck a few, cobbled a few things together and got a following. No, it was prophesied. Prophesied where he would be born. It's prophesied that he would be in this line, from this nation, from this tribe. You can't make those things happen, okay? You can't decide in the womb, well, even, you know, you can't decide before that. I'll decide which family and which tribe I'll be born in. And then I will decide which part, which city I will be born in. Go and read the story. They weren't even from, supposed to be in, in Bethlehem. Why did they go there? Because God moved the emperor to, to have a census. And so they had to move back home. That wasn't their home. They had to go there. That the prophecies would be fulfilled that he is born in Bethlehem. All of these things are to say that Jesus Christ is prophesied about. And you have to deal with that. If you're a Christian, this should strengthen your faith. This is the fulfillment of, and then there's hundreds of prophecies and you can go and search on the internet, fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And they're not things that you could make happen. And if you're not a Christian, you have to deal with that. You have to interact with that. To say this genealogy, these prophecies, this line can only be fulfilled in, in Christ. And he has done it. And then secondly, if he is a king, then he has a claim on your life. And the Bible teaches clearly he's not simply king of the Jews. He is the king of the world. He is the king of all nations. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. And so he has a claim on the life of every human being. The Bible says he's the creator God. He owns us because he created us. And then if you're a believer, he owns you by redemption as well. You belong to him. And so you, and this is a well-known example, uh, but I'll only use it once a year. C.S. Lewis, it's called Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. And so C.S. Lewis says this. He said, you cannot, you cannot say Jesus was a nice guy, a great teacher. You cannot just say he's a, he was a guru. Uh, and what C.S. Lewis says, he says, Jesus Christ did not leave that option open to us. If you're saying that, I would, say, I would suggest that you've never read the Gospels. You will not find in the Gospels that Jesus just comes as a nice guy. As a sort of fount of wisdom with nice aphorisms from how to live well. Okay? Seven steps to a successful marriage. Five steps to wealth or anything like that. He's not like that. He's not Confucius. He's not full of pithy quotes. He's making these drastic statements, like I just said, that he will judge the whole world. That every human being will stand before him. That either you fall on him and are broken, or else he will fall on you and grind you to dust. Okay? And so what Lewis says is, either he's a, either he's, he's a liar, you know? that's what you'd have to say. He's a liar, he's just totally nuts, he's a liar, he's a lunatic. Lewis actually says this, he says, on the level... Of the man who thinks he's a poached egg. Okay. That's true. What would you think of your neighbor who suddenly goes around saying, I will, all of you are going to stand before me on judgment day? You would say he's. Get him the straitjacket. Okay. 
That's what we would think. Rightfully so. So Lewis says you cannot come and say, well, he was a nice guy. Either he's a liar or he's a lunatic or else he is Lord. He's not left that option open to you to think he's a nice guy. He is Lord. And as you go through the Gospels, you will see that every person who meets the Lord Jesus Christ properly, no one ever responds to him in a neutral way. Have you noticed that? Go, go and check again. You won't find anyone in the Gospels coming away from an interaction with Jesus saying, oh, he's quite a nice guy. Uh, oh, interesting. Um, you don't find that. Jesus polarizes people, doesn't he? Either people love him, they're drawn to him, they worship him, they don't always understand everything, especially the disciples, they get it wrong, or else they hate him and they want to kill him and they want to betray him and get rid of him. That's the response. And so if you're sitting here, and you've never felt either of those emotions, you have never met the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think, Christianity is nice, it's a nice religion, you've never met Christ. It's actually a good thing. If you're sitting here angry, (laughs) I would say Christ is confronting you. It's His grace to you. You're actually meeting with Him. He's actually touching your life Touching those points, those idols that you hold on to. Those gods in your life that you refuse to give up. And he's making you angry. It's a good place, not the best place. But it means he's meeting with you. But if you leave here and you go away, it's the worst thing. You can ask any preacher. The worst thing. When people come up often and say, it was so interesting, so nice. Um, Uh... Yeah, I'm going to try harder next week. It's the worst thing. Now, fortunately, it's got nothing to do. You don't need to meet me. (laughs) I'm not the one. The Holy Spirit is the one who will reveal Christ. But if you're angry or you're drawn to worship this one and say, yes, I'm so glad he is the one who's going to judge. I'm so glad he is the king. I want to follow him. I want to bring all my gifts, all the talents and abilities, my life to him. then you've met the true Christ. You've met him. And so he is a king. And because he is king, you owe him allegiance and worship and adoration and obedience. Now that's not what saves you. Very, very important. We're not saved by being good. We're saved by grace, and we'll see that just now. But Christ calls you as king... To lay down your weapons of rebellion. To lay down your pride. To, be, to turn from it. To say, I'm going to humble myself and trust in you alone for my forgiveness. Now even though he is a king, he is no malicious tyrant. He is a gracious king. Again, the history of the world is littered with cruel tyrants, isn't that right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. That's sadly the history, by and large, of the world. 
that benevolent dictators are few and far between. And the best of men are men at best. So most kings have sinned in terrible ways. And all kings have sinned in some way or another. But not this king. He's never ever sinned. He is a gracious king. He is a shepherd king. A servant leader. And we see something of the grace of God. We saw it last week. In those ladies that are included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That Matthew shows us. To be part of this family. To be part of Christ's family. It's a family of grace. That no matter what you've done. What sin you've, you've done before. Or sins you've done. What lifestyle you've had before. If you come to Christ in repentance and faith. There is grace. There is forgiveness. And you can be part of his family. But also we see grace in. Because maybe some of you sit here and you think. Well. You know I'd, I don't really like those ladies in that list. A bit rough. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want them in my family line. No, I prefer nice, nice people. And so you're full of self-righteousness. You're a self-righteous person. You think, well, I'm a good person. I try my best. I go to church. I pay tithes. All of these things. I battle with this stuff of these bad people <laughs> in the Bible. Okay? Uh, I don't really like that. Uh, you know, what if people think they can sin? Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like that kind of thing. Well, let me say to you, there's grace for you as well. Okay? If you will humble yourself, it's, it seems from Scripture and the Gospels especially, it's a lot harder. You know, those who, who are sick... No, they need a doctor, don't they? Jesus uses that analogy. He's talking to the Pharisees. He wasn't saying that the Pharisees aren't sick. But they didn't think they were sick. They thought they were okay. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like that. And I don't assume just because you're a member of a church that you can't be like that. In fact, it's more likely the Pharisees were in. It's more likely we become like that. So we say, no, well, I would like certain people in my list. If I had a list, I would definitely have David. David was a great guy. David is the sweet singer of Israel. David's the greatest king. David's the one who kills Goliath. David's the one who, I mean, he is held up in the Bible as, as the greatest king. Perhaps the greatest Old Testament saint. He is the one who writes the Psalms. Oh, my goodness. The man who wrote the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. How used by God was this man? How great was this man on every level? A warrior. Without fear. Uh, uh, Bayman sent me a video the other day of two bears fighting. Big bears. Okay. <laughs> Frightening. And you know what the scripture tells us about David? For a little lamb, he kills a bear and a lion without fear. And then when there's no bears and lions, what's he doing? He's sitting there on his harp under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, composing, writing, 
beautiful psalms. And there in the loneliness and the darkness, you can see in some of the psalms, there's night shift. All alone in the cold, looking after these sheep. Then he's been chased by, by Saul and hounded and going all over the place and in caves. And say, well, this, that's the type of people we need. People with backbone and courage and skill. That's who I want to be associated with. But look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, mentioned there. There were many kings in this list, but David is the one who is highlighted. He is the king. He's the paradigmatic king of the Old Testament. He is the shadow and the type of of Christ. And then, look at what Matthew says. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, I said to you last week, I spoke to you about Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. Now, Matthew is not right. You know, he doesn't mention her name because he's against her or he's trying to slight her or anything like that. What he's doing is, he's reminding us of David's sin. He could have just said, he could have just mentioned Bathsheba. But isn't it interesting the way he words it? Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Uriah is mentioned as one of David's mighty men. When everyone else left him, there were these few men who stayed with him, who risked their lives, and Uriah was one of them. And Uriah was a Hittite who proselytized. He was proselytized and he became a Jew. And we know that David promised, and it was tradition, that the houses nearest the palace where the king stayed were the people who had done mighty, valiant acts for their king. And so Uriah's house is right there because David looks out and he sees Bathsheba on the rooftop. This man risked his life for for David. This man who had left the pagan world with all its obscenity and vulgarity and immorality and he comes to Jerusalem, to Zion, the city of David. Can you imagine? Do you think Uriah would ever have thought in a million years that David would do this to him? No, I've left that. I've left the Hittites. I've left. That's pagan's behavior. But he comes into Jerusalem. Right next to David. And he goes to fight. And we told, it was, a, it was spring. It was a time when kings were supposed to go fight. And David's anointing was in singing and in warfare. He never lost a battle. But what does he do? When kings are supposed to go and fight, he stays at home. It's gone to his head, hasn't it? And then it seems, you know, he stays in bed. I don't know if he watched Netflix till early, <laughs> binge watched and then stayed in bed till the afternoon. But it says that he only gets out of bed in the afternoon. You can go and read previous times when David nearly sinned badly. God protected him. God stopped him from sinning. My Old Testament lecturer used to say, it was beautiful, he said, when you're fighting the Lord's battles, he will protect you from sin. 
David was fighting the Lord's battles and when he was nearly at times where he was going to kill innocent people in his own anger, the Lord protected him. But here he's not fighting the Lord's battles anymore and the Lord allows him to just sin. I think it's a helpful, I found it a helpful uh, diagnostic tool as I examine my own sin. You know, once a year that happens. Uh, <laughs> not, a, not at all, not a chance. Uh, it's to say, have I been fighting the Lord's battles? Why did, Lord, why did you allow me to, 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 to go down this path? I'm not blaming God. I'm responsible. But you know that, I hope you know that God can stop us from sinning. Go and read Genesis. Go and read about Abraham and lying about his wife. And how the Lord stopped the king from sleeping with Sarah. The Lord says, I stopped you from doing that. The Lord will keep you if you fight in his battles. What are his battles? Fighting sin, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Fighting for truth, valiant for truth. Fruit of the Spirit, bearing fruit of the Spirit in our lives. He will keep you. But I can see when I start to become proud, pride comes before a fall. That's exactly what happened. But what a fall. What a fall. You know the story. How he sleeps with Bathsheba. She falls pregnant. He calls Uriah back. Hopes that Uriah will go and sleep with his wife. But he says, I can't. Look at him. Uriah is so noble, more noble than David. <laughs> Way more noble than David. He says, I can't do that. All my men are on the battlefield. How can I enjoy uh, my wife and the comforts of home while my men are risking their lives? No, I can't do that. It would be dishonorable. I mean, who thinks like that anymore? Honor. So, what does David do? Gets him drunk the next night. Hoping he'll go back. But even in, in, in that state, he still has enough honor to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And so then he says, okay, well, take this letter back. And in the letter is his own death warrant. And Joab's told to put him at the front of the battle where it's hottest. And then to withdraw from him, to leave him alone. Let him, let him be killed. Can you imagine David, 23rd Psalm, all the Psalms, how callous he had become. In fact, he's so callous when the message comes back that he is dead, Uriah is dead. He says, don't, don't let it bother you. The sword takes some and leaves others. You know, these things happen. People die. It's insane. It's a warning to all of us. Don't think just because you know the Lord, you're in the church, that you cannot become as hard as David. Was David not saved at that? Yes, he was saved. He belonged to God, but he had become worse than the Hittites. Jerusalem was less safe than a pagan city. And so I think Matthew intentionally does that to say... Even those, the good guys. So remember I said to you, at that culture, patriarchal culture, you know, women were looked down upon. It was shocking that they were there. 
And everyone would be saying, no, I want Abraham and David. These are the powerful, the great guys. But we don't have time to go into the patriarchs, and Matthew doesn't draw that out. But he mentions this. And if you think you're a good guy, if you think you've got it together, you've missed it. We all need God's grace. We all have sinned, all in different ways. But the gospel will confront us on every single level. And even here in this short little genealogy, we are confronted. If you're a traditional, overt sinner, you've done the -the run-of-the-mill things that everyone does when they go to varsity, sleep around, get drunk, take drugs, do all the things, there is grace for you. There is forgiveness for you. If you were to come in repentance and humility. And if you've never done all of that, but you've been a proud little idiot, <laughs> looking down on everyone else, moaning about everyone else, moaning about how bad the world is, and this and this and this, but by implication how good you are. But God knows your heart. He sees all the things in your heart. There's grace for you as well. You know that many of the Pharisees were converted. It's glorious. They realized their sin. The greatest of them is Saul. Isn't that right? Paul. He said concerning the law, blameless. Now he was not saying he had never sinned. He was saying externally. Nobody, nobody could point a finger at Paul. Say, Paul, you're lying. No, he didn't do it. He didn't lie. You've committed adultery. No, he never committed adultery. You've stolen. No, he didn't steal. It says concerning the law, blameless. But the law that got him in Romans was, thou shalt not covet. What got him was when he looked into his own heart. And so maybe you've never done all those things that you look down on other people for doing, but look at your heart. And that's what Jesus does in Matthew, doesn't he? Even if you've not committed adultery, but looked with lust, you're, you're guilty. Even if you've never murdered, but your heart is full of hate, you're a, a murderer. You see, we all want to be associated with the good guys in, in our genealogy or in, our, in life. We want to be with the powerful, the good, whatever we define good as. Uh, to get a name for ourselves. Uh, and often we're, we're inconsistent. We overlook things. We overlook sins in our own lives. It's been fascinating to me in the last few years with American politics. I remember when Bill Clinton was president. Okay? And Bill Clinton had an affair while he was president. And I, I remember conservative pastors saying, you cannot have a man who has no character leading this country. They said that. They said throughout the Bible, character and leadership go together. Bill Clinton was a Democrat. Those same men praised Trump to the hilt. And I would say Trump is, is a more vulgar, more promiscuous man than Bill Clinton, at least from what I can see. We don't know the secret life of Bill Clinton. But you see the inconsistency because you get what you want. And so Matthew is saying, look at David. 
Even David, the great David, was a wretched sinner. And yet, in Christ, he is forgiven. In Christ, he's in the line of David, in the line of Christ. And, and more than that, isn't, Christ, isn't it amazing that Christ is happy to take David's name upon himself? They call him the son of David. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 I don't want to be associated with that guy. You know what he did? He doesn't do that. Even God, when he reveals himself, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those guys were rotters, okay? I know Christians bend over backwards to try and like, no, but he was trying to, no. <laughs> they were bad, okay? And they, the son did the same thing that the father did. Uh, but God says, I'm their God. Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call you, my brethren, my brothers and sisters. It's incredible if you'll come in repentance and faith. So it's not by our works. Last night, this is in closing. Um, I thought it was going to be a 20 minutes. Sorry. Uh, uh, last night, my, my uh, family and I started watching one of my favorite movies, uh, Amadeus. I think it was made in the 80s. I think it won some Academy Awards. But it's, it's a sort of historic fiction based on the life of Mozart. And another composer who did really exist called Salieri. And in the story, Salieri is this composer who uh, loved music and then said he made a deal with God. And he said to the Lord, he said... Lord, I will glorify you in music if you, will, if you will make me the greatest musician and give me fame so that people will, will play my music forever. And if you give that to me, I promise I will give you my chastity. I will give you my industry. I will give you my faithfulness. And so he makes this deal with God. And then Mozart appears on the scene and everyone forgets about him. And he, he's, at that time at least, he's the only one who can see the genius of Mozart. But Mozart in the movie, and from what I've read in real life, is this crude, vulgar brat. Okay? And yet he has given this incredible gift, one of the greatest composers of all time. And so what's the story here? And Salieri becomes angry with God. He curses God. I'm the one who's... I, I, I've kept myself. I've done all of these things. And this is how you treat me. You give the gift to this, this rubbish. And you see, that's how we function. We think, I'll be a good person. And God will owe me. And I'll get what I want. And it's not like that. It's grace. God will give to a Mozart this ability... God will give to sinners the grace of salvation. It's a gift. But you have to see your need. And come to Him in repentance and faith. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You so much for uh, the scriptures. We thank you so much for all the accounts in your word that are so rich and powerful and visceral and memorable. Teach us so many lessons, Lord. Help us, Holy Spirit, to learn these lessons, to, to see your grace. 
Whether we are traditional sinners or self-righteous, there is grace and forgiveness available for us. Lord, this is not just for unbelievers. It's not as though we move on from the gospel. This is for every one of your children, Lord. Help us never to outgrow the gospel or to think we could outgrow it. Help us always to be amazed by this amazing grace. Keep us from self-righteousness, Lord. Keep us from licentiousness, thinking that we can abuse your grace. So, Father, we pray that you would work by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.